seeing the kids read the scriptures to us. They always do a wonderful job. Thankful for them. Um, also encouraged, if you go on the website, we have Advent devotionals that Bella has done a great job putting together. Um, I have been benefiting from those the first week, uh, or the first day, spoiler alert, uh, is describing Gabriel coming to earth and the spiritual warfare that may have been behind the scenes as he's coming to tell the Virgin Mary that Jesus is coming into the world. I just loved it. Check it out. Um, It's really important in your spiritual life to kind of align around the calendar. Uh, Advent season, Lenten season, Holy Week. Those things just keep reinforcing our faith. And um, with that in mind, it kind of segues into our series, Joy to the World. You might recall last week, if you were with us, I said that if I could give you one gift, anything in the world, if I had unlimited resources, unlimited capacity, that I would give you something very specific that I would want to stay with you for, for a lifetime. And it would not be something material. It would be a positive, happy faith. I believe that's the difference maker in the life of faith. And the, the scriptures tell us that this kind of faith is available to all of us. But here's the thing that you have to learn. Joy, joyfulness, is a learned skill, okay? It's true. You must take responsibility for your joy. It's not the responsibility of your friends, your parents, your spouse, your kids, uh, your school, your work. No, you are the one who is responsible for your joy. Now, for some of us, it doesn't come easily. Uh, It can be a challenge. You might be joy impaired. You might need to fight for your joy. But scripture says that it can be done. And it all begins with seeing things differently. A story that resonated with me recently was about a widow. And she had two sons. And her sons are trying to support her keep her fed, keep a roof over her house. So they go out and they start selling things. One son sells umbrellas, the other son sells fans. Now, every time the weather changed, the widow felt sadness. When it was raining outside, she felt sad because there would be no fans sold that day. And when it was sunny outside, she felt sad because there would be no umbrellas sold that day. After a time period of this kind of downcast feeling, one of her friends finally comes along to her and says, you've got to start thinking differently. It can be totally different. Think about when it's sunny, the reality that you're selling fans, and when it's raining, the reality that you're selling umbrellas. Think differently. Change your mind. Be happy. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to the changing weather? Cognitive psychologists remind us that between the events that happen to us and our response to them lies our beliefs and our interpretations of those events. I like how Helen Keller said it. She said, when one door of 
happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one which has been opened to us. One door closes, another door opens. How do you see the different doors? Yeah, I think Paul could relate to this reality. When Paul was at the peak of his missionary experience, you know, this is what makes him tick. He loves going into new contexts, telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing those contexts transformed. And he had it on his heart to visit Rome. In fact, when you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 13, he says to these believers earlier on, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Here you have a guy who, again, ticks, you know, like he is just all about the mission of Jesus Christ, and he's strategic with it. You know, Paul, when he's planting churches in his missionary journeys, is planting churches in city centers and trade routes so that when the church plants, the gospel goes out from there. Why does he want to go to Rome? Well, it's like the biggest opportunity out there, the epicenter of the then known world. Imagine if the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root there, how it could go out to all the world. God's plans aren't always our plans. I don't imagine that Paul ever conceived of how he would get to Rome. Now, here's the thing. He got a free ticket to Rome, but not one anyone wants to buy, right? No, no ticket anyone wants to receive. He goes to Rome in chains. He's telling people about Jesus. There's conflict over that. He gets arrested. He, he says, I need to speak to Caesar. They take him, and he goes through treacherous journeys. When he arrives in Rome, he's under house arrest. He has guards that are rotating shifts, and they are keeping him chained to themselves. Think about the loss of agency here. You can't go where you want to go. You're never alone. Now, I have to tell you, I felt that way when I had, like, kids, it's way worse in his predicament. It feels like such a loss of freedom. And yet, with all of this taking place, John Ortberg hits the nail on the head. He says, it takes a certain kind of heroism to continue to celebrate what deserves to be celebrated, even when all the details go disastrously wrong. Paul's details had gone disastrously wrong, yet... Here in Philippians, we see his interpretation of the details. So let's read this. This is verses 12 through 14. He says, And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So yeah, Paul's chained to guards 
24-7, but not just any guards. Uh, the guards that he's chained to are the Praetorian Guard. You need to think of these people as being the secret service to Nero. Uh, they are the secret service to the emperor of Rome. There are 9,000 of these individuals and they are the honorary guard, hand-picked, hand-selected, honored with double pay, good pension, special duties. I can't imagine Paul, as he's thinking about going to Rome, would ever have thought that he would get to tell these individuals about Jesus. And yet, some of them are coming to Christ. If you look at the end of the letter, Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul says... And all of the rest of God's people send greetings to you, especially those in Caesar's household. Isn't that a fun little tidbit? What? You mean Nero's inner circle, these soldiers and perhaps others who are involved in imperial affairs and beyond the inner circle? Paul and his coming in chains to Rome has re-energized the Roman church. Uh, commentator Gordon Fee notes that in the early 60s, Nero's madness, and Nero was a bad dude, bad emperor. His madness is peaking, and the church is now fallen under suspicion. Imagine living in an environment where you have a, an individual who has supreme authority, can say, you die and you die. The church is getting fearful. They're pulling back in their gospel ministry, and yet they see this Apostle Paul chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week, standing firm for the gospel. It's like wind in the sails of the church. So here's my question for you. When you think about your life and perhaps the disastrous details, when is it the right time to pursue your joy? When's the right time? You know, the biblical answer to that question is always right now. Right now. The psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Notice he doesn't say yesterday was the day that the Lord had made. Before all the disastrous details, that was when you were happy. And he also doesn't say tomorrow is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day. John Ortberg notes that we live with the illusion that joy will come someday when my conditions improve. In fact, when you think about it like that, some people spend their whole lives waiting for joy. They're waiting for the weather to change. Think about the course of someone's life, how joy can always be elusive. Say you're younger and in your mind, you're thinking as you're going through school, joy is going to arrive when I finish my education. 
And then you get to the next phase and you think, oh, joy is going to come when I get married. I'm going to find that Mr. or Mrs. Right, and that's going to change everything for me. When I say I do, joy is going to arrive. And then you get married, and then you're waiting on kids, and then you think to yourself, well, when the kids come, then I'll be joyful. And then the kids do come, and you realize how much work it is. So now you say to yourself, I'll be happy when I have an empty nest. Do you see how joy can always be the next mountain peak away? Scripture says, today is the day. That's Paul's answer. You can rejoice today because God's purposes are all around you all the time. Yes, the details can go disastrous from our perspective, but here's the thing about God. God exists above the details. He's in control of the details. One door closes. Another door opens. How do you see it? Joy is your responsibility, and some of us need to fight for it. Sometimes the fight for joy is internal. This is like within yourself where you're asking yourself, could I ever be happy? Could I ever experience good things in my life? Um, Some of us struggle in this internal battle because we've started telling ourselves bad stories. You know, the story that the Bible says about you is that you are made in the image of God, meaning there's nothing that you need to do to add value to your life. You are intrinsically valuable. It's a bad story when I start telling myself all these reasons why I'm not valuable. Other people, their fight for joy is external, meaning someone outside of yourself is sabotaging your joy because they are telling you bad stories or because you're going through an interpersonal conflict. Now, here's the thing about Paul. Paul understood what it was like to go through interpersonal conflict. Look at the next part of his letter here, verses 15 through 17. He says, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news The others do not have pure motives if they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. Think about this. There's this behind the scenes in Rome. And let's be honest, we all have a behind the scenes somewhere. It could be at home It could be at work. It could be inside of the church. There's a behind the scenes. There are certain people in this Roman church that don't like the Apostle Paul, don't respect his authority, don't want to see his mission succeed. Now, as you look through the New Testament, this interpersonal conflict that Paul faces happens recurringly to him. And I want to just highlight a couple of the themes as to why. And these themes can happen in churches, at home, and elsewhere. 
For Paul, some of the conflict arose because people questioned his right to exercise authority. Now, why does Paul have the right to exercise authority with churches? Well, let me just give you a little play-by-play. He's on the road to Damascus. He is given a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ on that road called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I believe that one part of Paul's journey as he was developing was actually to go into the wilderness and be personally mentored by Jesus for a season. And then under the authority of the other apostles at the time, he sent out on mission into the greater world. So when he writes to churches, He's not just saying, oh, this is what I think about things sometimes. No, he's saying this is Jesus's will for the church. Now, if you look at Romans 14 and 15, chapter 14, chapter 15, Paul is dealing with a very kind of specific situation. There are Jewish Christians, there are Gentile Christians, and the Jewish Christians believe that in order to be more holy, you have to obey the food restrictions of the prior Old Testament Jewish law. Paul says to them, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. You can imagine, though, this church gets this letter, some of these people read it and they hear it, and they say to themselves, who is this guy to tell us what to do? He's not a part of us. He's not one of us. I don't care what he thinks. There's like a, an animosity, a charged feeling now that's been created. So Paul, if you look at his leadership style in the New Testament, is, is a character study on leadership. He's not the kind of guy that just walks into a room and says, hey, everybody, I'm the apostle. Do as I say, not as I do. No, Paul is a great leader. He leverages his influence. He persuades. He models what is good and healthy and wholesome. And yet, even despite that, in many churches, people resisted his authority. They resented it. Uh, Another reason you look in other parts of the New Testament, some people assign him with bad motives. As he's going into Corinth, for example, that part of the world, I believe, struggled with the idolatry of the love of money. I mean, materiality, possessions were just a big deal to these people. And they always thought that someone had it in for them, right? They were just trying to get their money. So what does Paul do when he goes into this context? He doesn't take a dollar from them. He works for himself. He provides for his own meals. He labors for them saying, I don't want anything from you. I just want you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And despite that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that they're calling him a robber. That you are a robber because you're taking contributions from other churches. I mean, the guy's like, can I get a break here? Help me out. I haven't taken a penny from you. The final thing that we see is ego. Now, this is probably the toughest opposition to deal with 
in any kind of environment. When someone comes in and makes it all about themselves, and think about a local church. I mean, in any local church, there are people that are here because they just love Jesus and they want to serve Jesus. And then there's other people, they lead because they just want to be in charge. They want to be viewed as smart, talented, competent, whatever. Some people serve because they love the mission. Other people throw the mission under the wheels of the bus if their ego has been offended. I want you to understand something, and this is kind of like a broader point on joy when it comes to this interpersonal stuff. When you enter a church, you're going to meet both kinds of people. You're going to meet people with good motives. You're going to meet people with bad motives. I guarantee it. You can shift like 1,000 churches. You're always going to find that dynamic in any church. So what do we do? How do I process that? How do I work with joy in the midst of the local church as I'm interfacing with that? I love what David Murray says. He says this, the more the devil can keep us thinking and talking about Christians, the less we will be thinking and talking about Christ. Do you remember who the source of your joy is? Do you remember where the center of gravity of joy is? Is it your family, co-workers, neighbors? No, it's Christ. Focusing on Christians will rob you of your joy. And I have to say, I know this as a pastor. I know this. The other day, I, I saw a post from a pastor that just kind of stopped me in my tracks because it just resonated. Um, the blogger said this, most people will lose five to seven significant relationships over the course of their lifetime, but pastors lose five to seven significant relationships per year. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Sometimes it's just because people move. You guys remember last year? Um, if you've been with our church for a while, you knew last year that a lot of people move because the house is appreciated so much. People sold homes, cashed in on equity. Relationships that we just loved and cherished, separated. Nothing wrong with it. It's, it's life. It's what happens, but it happened. Some people move, other people move on. They're like, you know, for whatever reason, I just need to find another church. It happens. But a lot of the times with pastors, what happens is what is called just interpersonal conflict over leadership decisions. Um, I lead a pastoral network, for example, and I've been talking to all the guys in this network, and within the last year, to a person, I believe, every pastor has been criticized, challenged, even had their motives called into question. I read a blog post from another pastor. He said, recently, their family, over a leadership decision, lost 90% of their friendships, and that spilled over into their kids. So, like, why am I telling you this? 
Is it because I want you guys to come to me after church and, oh, Rob, I'm so sorry for you. Your life's hard. It must be miserable. No. I feel blessed. I love what I do. I love the ministry. I'm telling you this to say, I get it. I know what it feels like to be hurt by a Christian. My wife knows what it feels like. My kids have experienced it. And here's the thought process that we've landed on. We choose joy. We choose community. The principle that our family chooses to live by is we focus on the good relationships and we don't, don't dwell on the disappointing ones. Remember, each of us is responsible for our own joy. And, and the devil wants you to get discouraged in community, to leave it, to say, oh, I've been hurt. I'm getting away from this. I'm never doing this again. He wants you to do that. Jesus, on the other hand, wants you to focus on him and find other people that are deriving their happiness from him too. I believe that Paul's focus on Christ is why he could develop such a charitable attitude even while he's in prison. Look at verse 18. All of this stuff's happening. And he says, but that doesn't matter. Don't we need to say that more often? But that, say this with me, but that doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. And all the church says, amen. Isn't it inspiring? Imagine your influence as a believer in Jesus Christ if, as you were going out, your workplace, your clients, your church, your home, your friends, you are adopting this positive faith in every aspect of your life. Isn't it encouraging to think about Paul? Yes, I'm imprisoning prison, but it doesn't matter because God is at work in this place. Yes, there are some people, let's just be honest, they've been stinkers. But that doesn't matter because there are other people who are really, really good and they get it and they're doing the right thing and the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out. One door closes, another door opens. Which door are you looking at? I was talking to a young guy this week, encouraging guy. He's really been just fun to get to know and as we were talking through faith and the journey of faith, we were talking about God's grand purpose for our life. And isn't that the million-dollar question? What does God want me to do? And I get why we ask this question. I don't want to miss the boat. <laughs> I want to be in, you know, the, the stream of where God is going. I want to pursue his purposes with my life. But I've come to the conclusion that you and I entered into God's grand purposes for our lives the moment that we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In other words, 
you don't need to make a drastic life change to find God's grand purpose for your life. You don't need to necessarily get on a plane and go to a different country unless you sense that God's calling you into that direction. No, God's grand purpose for your life is right here, right now, right where you are. It's all around you. I don't need to take two steps to find it. No, God's grand purpose is happening in this church right now. His grand purpose happens in your work environment, in the neighborhood where you reside. It's within the walls of your home. And Paul approached this grand purpose with joy. Remember, he says the message about Christ is being preached, so I rejoice. Do you sense how like contagious that is? You like being around people like that? I do. You know, they say that in your area of influence, there are almost 1,000 people within three degrees of you. So the first degree is your friends, the second degree is your friends, friends. The third degree is friends, friends, friends. Think about this. Your influence, whether positive or negative, impacts the lives and homes and workplaces of hundreds of people around you. What sort of faith are you presenting? We have the happiest of all faiths. It is such a blessing. Don't let the world tell you a different story. Don't let the culture say, no, this faith is hateful and it's bigoted and it's, they're not happy people and it's wrong. That's just not true. Our faith has a positive symbol standing at the center of it. Now, this positive symbol is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. And you look at that thing and you're like, I don't know if that's very positive. That looks like an instrument of execution to me. How is that positive? Well, the reality of the gospel is this. This symbol is a reminder that God can transform the most unimaginable negative, people being separated from God, people being lost in their sins, people being hellbound, into an inconceivable positive people being adopted into God's family and being justified and being made right with him. You know, with one vertical line, one vertical act, God leaving heaven and coming to earth as a baby, incarnation, and then living the life that you couldn't live in your place, the life of Christ, and in laying down his life on that cross, dying for your sins in your place, crucifixion, and then being the first among us to be risen from the dead, resurrection. In all of this, Christianity is promising to change the equation of your life, no matter how disastrous the details, into an overabounding positive, where God is going to change the trajectory of your eternity with his love for you and his care for you and his control over your life. I know that the weather changes 
I know it does. Sometimes it's sunny and sometimes it's rainy in our lives. But you know what I've come to realize as a pastor is that God uses it all. He uses the joys, he uses the sorrows to impact the 1,000 or so people within our glow. I, I think about the words of that friend of the widow who needed to think differently about the weather. You know, if it's sunny outside, you get to sell fans. You get to present, God's blessing me. I'm grateful for what he's doing. If it's raining outside, you get to sell umbrellas. You know, this has been a challenging season in my life, and yet I'm persevering. I'm holding fast because he's been so faithful to me over the years. In other words, we've got to change our mind. We've got to learn to be happy. And as people see us live out this kind of faith, I'm telling you, it's impactful. Listen, this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to revolutionize your joy. Uh, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you know, I, I've never made a faith commitment. I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. I've never made things right with God in my life. I want to just tell you how you can do that this morning. I think there's just two important steps as you think about this. Step number one, it's an acknowledgement, and this can be a hard one, but it's an acknowledgement. I'm not God. I'm not in control of my life. I can't earn God's forgiveness. No, that is something that only God can do for me. Secondly, you have to realize who Jesus is. Why did Jesus become a man? Why did he live on this earth? Why would he die on the cross? He did it so that you might have salvation. Uh, the gospel says it like this, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So have you trusted in that? Have you believed that Jesus came specifically for you to die in your place? Can I ask you to bow your heads with me for just a minute and just kind of give God your attention? If you are sitting there today and saying, you know, I really haven't made that faith step with Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity right now in the quietness of your heart to make a faith commitment. And it's simply just praying this prayer to start a relationship with Jesus. You can pray quietly in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want, to, I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control.